Amen. Well, tonight uh, we're going to have a young man come and preach for you. Uh, and no, I'm not a young man anymore. Uh, I feel older. And, uh, and, and, you know, I had about 15 people come up to me Sunday after church saying, did you hear what you said? Who was in the early service Sunday? Who laughed in the early service? Shame on you. Shame on you laughing at my expense. And if you weren't, if you weren't in the early service, you don't need to know what I said. But uh, I was supposed to be talking about a wedding, but I referred to it as a funeral. And it, no, I love my wife. It wasn't a funeral going into it. So, uh, but uh, glad to have Ty come and preach. He, he oversees our Awana ministry, doing a great job there. And so make him feel welcome as he comes and brings a word tonight. All right. Well, good evening, guys. How are you tonight? Good. Um, I always appreciate the opportunity to come over here to this side of the building. I'm over there seems like all the time, but I love being over in the children's ministry, but I'm always grateful for opportunities to come over here. Um, I want to thank Pastor Josh for the opportunity to um, preach from his pulpit. I know a uh, pastor's responsible for his flock, and um, he's also responsible for the one that feeds them. So I don't take it lightly, Pastor. I appreciate the opportunity. So I went back through and was looking at um, just the different messages I had preached here at Lighthouse, and I actually realized that I had preached this same Wednesday night. It was December 28th last year. And I was confused. I was like, man, how did I preach off of four pages of notes last year? I'm like, that's crazy. Me and Cam had split it, so that makes a little bit more sense. But this year, um, as I prayed and sought the Lord what to preach, um, the Lord really laid on my heart one of my favorite Christmas passages uh, to present tonight. But don't turn to Luke 2 or Matthew 1, though. This isn't a typical Christmas passage, but I think it shows the whole picture of the reason Christ came to this earth 2,000 years ago. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. And when you get there, if you would, please stand to honor and reverence God's word as we read. The Bible says in Philippians 2, chapter, uh, verse number 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to come into your house. Lord, I pray now as we look into your word that you would um, take me out of the way. Lord, I pray that you would use your word in spite of me and that uh, it would go out and do what you would have it to accomplish. Lord, I pray now that you would calm my nerves and help me to speak clearly uh, your word uh, Lord, we'll give you all the praise, the honor, and the glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So, as a staff, we have a few running jokes. Um, I'm sure you guys are familiar with some of them, but we always joke saying that when we pulpit fill for pastor, it's kind of the hardest part is just picking what to preach. The hardest part of preaching here is what to preach. And I know you're thinking, like, there's a whole Bible to preach from. How is it hard to pick? Right? But with there being a whole Bible to preach from, there means there's countless options. So then you have to try and think, okay, well, what should I preach? But then you also want to preach exactly what the Lord would have you to. But that's our first problem. The second problem is, is that 
there are copyrights on certain topics or passages in the Bible. If I were to get him up here tonight and preach Hebrews 1, I think Alex would copyright sue me. I mean, that's just his book of the Bible. If I was to preach Isaiah 6, Pastor Josh would copyright strike me. There's things that you just can't preach about if you're going to be in Pastor Josh's pulpit. Joking aside, but it really is a challenge sometimes, deciding what to preach um, as we pulpit fill, because we don't get to do series. We have one night to lay out the context and what the passage means and how this applies to us. But this time, it wasn't really a challenge, praise the Lord. As soon as pastor had asked in staff meetings, like, hey, who wants to preach December 27th? Dibs, got it, please, I'll preach. I'm always thankful for opportunities to preach. But as soon as I had volunteered, the Lord laid on my heart Philippians chapter number 2. And I love the Philippian epistle. Uh, this is one of my favorite books in the Bible. And I love all of the epistles for their practicality and for their doctrine. But this one stands out from among the rest. And it stands out because of the theme that the letter represents. Philippians emphasizes joy. But not joy like the world sees it because they have no true joy. But this is joy found in Christ. Philippians 4 verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord. Always. And again, I say rejoice. That joy comes from the Lord. And forms of the word joy and rejoice actually appear in the epistle of Philippians 18 times. Paul had this theme of joy as he's preaching. And what's crazy is even though his theme is joy, he's preaching from house arrest in Rome. This theme is all throughout Philippians. And we come to the passage tonight, and the passage where we start is a point of transition. We see in verse 5 that it says, Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. And that's a little confusing if we start there, because it's, well, what mind? What are we talking about? That phrase, let this mind be in you, another way of saying it would be to let this attitude be in yourselves. Have this mindset. Have this attitude as you go about things. And this attitude that we have to have comes from verses 2 through 4. Verses 2 through 4 says, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And this is that mindset that we have to have before we can really dive into our passage. And honestly, I love those verses. I've actually preached a whole message just out of those three verses. But for the time's sake, I would like to just recap that so we know what we're talking about before we go into it. So there's six basic themes that are laid out here in Philippians 2, 2 through 4. There's six basic Christian principles that are given to us. This is all intro, by the way, so I'll move quickly. Follow along in your Bibles as we look at it. The first thing there is that you have the same love, right? As a local church, you're supposed to have the same love. And as Christians, what is that love we're supposed to have? Something I love is being in children's ministry. Those kids are a lot smarter than you give them credit for. These kids are smart, man. And we memorize scripture in junior church together. If you ask any of them, they're 6 year old to 11, they can quote John 15, 5, Ephesians 4, 32, and countless others. And right now we're actually working on this passage about love. It's Matthew 22, 36 through 40. And I know you're thinking, that's a lot of verses for kids. They're smart. They'll get it. Give them about a month. So the Bible says in Matthew 22, 36 through 40, it says, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So if we love God the way we're supposed to and we love others the way we're supposed to, Jesus says that that whole law hangs on those two things. 
We'll obey the whole word of the Lord if we can properly do those two things. So that's that first one is having the same love. Number two, there's being of one accord. And another way of translating this would be united in spirit. The Greek word literally means one-souled. As a local body, we're supposed to be one-souled, having the same desires, the same ambitions, and the same passions. That's what that phrase means. And next it says one mind. This means that the church is supposed to have one purpose, one thing that we're going after. Here at Lighthouse, our goal is to know Christ and to make him known. So that means as a church member, my goal should be to know Christ in the best way that I can and to make him known to others. As a children's director, my job is to make sure those kids know Christ and that they're helping their friends make Christ known. That's the goal here at Lighthouse. Number four there is letting nothing be done through strife or vainglory. And what this really could mean is this means don't do anything out of selfish ambition or to fill yourself with pride. Listen, it's not, we're not supposed to do things. I'm not supposed to come up here and preach so that I can be filled with vainglory. Oh, you did so good. No, I didn't. It's all the Lord, right? That's not my job. It's not here to be filled with strife and vainglory, selfish ambition. Who are we supposed to glorify? The Lord, right? Not ourselves. Number five, moving quickly, because this is intro. It says, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. And I think this one is key. It says, in humility, regard others as better than yourself. Treat others like they are more important than you. Serve instead of waiting to be served. You're esteeming others better than yourselves. And that point right there could be a whole message in and of itself. And finally, number six there, it says, look on the things of others. Don't just look out for your own personal interests. Don't look out for your own personal gain. Look out for the interests of others, right? If we're only focused on ourselves, a lot of times you lose perspective. Oh, woe is me. My life is so hard, right? We say that my problems are so bad. My problems are so awful. But in reality, if we really would open our eyes and look on the interests of others, the things of others, we would realize that it's not that bad. So what do these all all six of these basic principles point to. They all point to one basic principle, one principle that's key to a Christian faith, and that principle is humility, right? It says, give up your self-love for loving God and loving others, right? Give up your own desires, your ambitions and goals for the unity of the local body. Give up of yourself and go as a group. Let go of your selfish ambition and treating others as though they're more important than you. All of those things point back to humility. But what did verse 5 say? It said, let this mindset, this mind, this attitude be in you, which was also in who? Christ Jesus. We're supposed to have this mindset because Jesus had this idea. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. This brings us to our first point. The Bible says, or our point tonight, excuse me, is the humiliation of Christ. The humiliation of Christ. If you would, look again in your Bibles to uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. He says, Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, but took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." This is a really popular passage in the Bible among theologians. Um, it's very revered. Uh, it's known as the kenosis passage of Scripture. 
And it has some of the most profound and crucial teaching on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to focus tonight, though, on the massive downward step that Christ took when he came into this world. Verse 6 says that who being in the form of God, right? Jesus, who is in being in the form of God, what does it mean to be in the form of God? Does it mean that he's just a lesser God? Does it mean that he's, oh, it's kind of like God, but he's just like a lesser version? Listen, we have to take the utmost care when we study scripture. Because a bad understanding of this verse right here is the start of a false gospel. Before, during, and after the incarnation, Jesus is God. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him, him being Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The word in our home text there is form, comes from a Greek word called morphe. And this word doesn't mean like a lesser or another form, but this word just means an external appearance. It's an outward picture of a truth. John MacArthur had this to say about the word. He said, morphe refers to an outward manifestation of an inner reality. The idea is that before the incarnation, from all eternity past, Jesus pre-existed in the divine form of God, equal with God the Father in every way. Colossians 1.15 says, Who is the image, who is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all, of every creature, excuse me. Jesus isn't a lesser God, but he is the fullness of God in bodily form. And that comes from Colossians 1.19. It says, For it pleased the Father that him, Christ, should all fullness dwell. Jesus is the visible image of an invisible God, 100% man and 100% God. Keep reading our text, though. It says, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And this verse 7 is that kenosis verse. And our, our King James Bible reads it as, but made himself of no reputation. The Greek, though, reads it as kanao heatu. And what that means is he kanao heatu'd himself. And what that is is literally, if you translate it literally from Greek, it means that Christ emptied himself. Kanao is where we get that word kenosis. He emptied himself. This verse describes the doctrine of Christ's self-emptying during the incarnation. But what did Christ empty of himself? What did he lay aside when he came to this earth? Did Jesus just give up his godly attributes while he was here on earth? Is that what scripture teaches? No, right? He didn't give up his omniscience, omnipresence, or omnipotence, right? He's still God, just in human form. But better understanding of this would say that Jesus laid aside his privileges as God. He laid aside his comfort of God. He gave up the privileges that were rightfully his while he was sitting in heaven. Have you ever thought about what Jesus' birth meant for Jesus? When Jesus came down to this earth, did you ever think about what that meant for him? We see in 1 Peter 3.22 that Jesus is sitting on the right hand of God. So Jesus went from his throne in heaven to a manger, Luke 2.27. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. With the Christmas season, we always talk about Jesus being born. He came to this earth for us, right? We talk about Jesus being born. But do you understand that God himself came from his throne to be born in a manger? 
God had to be held by his virgin mother. I think so often we overlook that true fact. You might say, well, he was a baby. Did he really grasp what he said? Like what was happening? Did he really understand that? But what did the angel say in Luke 2 verse 11? He says, for unto you is born this day a Savior, which is Christ the who? Lord. He was born as Lord. He wasn't born as a human and later the Spirit of God filled him. No, he was born as Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe. Our home text in verse 7 says, He took upon the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. That word form again is morphe. 100% man, 100% God. Jesus had to humble himself to the form of a servant from the form of God. Jesus gave up all of his comfort, all of his privileges to take the form of a servant for me and for you. All of his comfort of heaven for you and for me. He gave it all up. He emptied himself of all of those privileges. But what did verse 5 say? He said, let this mind be in you, which also in Christ Jesus. Christ is to be our example of how to live. Charles Spurgeon said this, Jesus left all of the royalties of heaven to be born in a stable and laid in the manger. Just to dwell on that fact sometimes, I think is very good for us. You don't think that Jesus was comfortable on the throne of the universe? But he esteemed us more important than his comfort. So last night, me and Lacey, uh, we were just getting in bed, and it was kind of funny. I'm laying in bed. I'm probably 30 seconds from falling asleep. Like, I am right there. And she goes, hey, Ty, would you get up and get me a tissue? And I'm like, oh, man. And I'm laying there, and I'm like, Jesus gave up all of his comfort for me. Oh, man. I'm like, man, come on. And I'm like, yes, ma'am, I'll get up. And I got her tissue, and it was fine. But I'm sitting there, and I'd studied all day, and that's what the first thing comes on my mind. Jesus gave up all his comfort for you. You can't give up. you can fall asleep right now. It was funny. It, it came to mind. But think about that. Are we willing to be uncomfortable for the Lord? Would you give up your comfort for the one that gave up your comfort, for, his comfort for you? How far was Jesus willing to humble himself for us? Did he just go, well, I'll go be born of a virgin, lay in a stable, um, then hang out for like 20 years, and then I'm going back to my throne, right? Is that what Jesus said? No. Is that the mindset that Jesus had? Well, that's all right, but I'll hang out for a little bit, then I'm going back home. I don't, I don't want to do that. Is that the mindset that Jesus had? No. Verse 8 says, in being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And Jesus' great stepping down from heaven, he was willing to suffer humiliation, even to becoming obedient to death. Obedience takes humility. Has anybody ever worked with a prideful person before? Damn, I'm kidding. I'm just messing with you. <laughs> he raised his hand, pointing to me. No, I'm just teasing. But for real, has anybody ever worked with a prideful person before? Right? Do they take instruction very well? No. I've worked with kids, guys. When that kid is full of pride, and I ain't doing it just because I don't want to. It's like, dude, just come on. It's, you're going to get in trouble. But listen, humility is key to true obedience. Without humility, there's not true obedience. And Jesus' obedience was necessary. His obedience to death was necessary for us. Romans 5.19 says, For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, 
shall many be righteous, be made righteous. Was obedience to death necessary for us? Yeah. Was obedience to death forced on Jesus, though? Right? You ever force a kid that doesn't want to do something to do it? My parents did it to me all the time, right? I was terrible. But John 10, verse 17 through 18 says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Jesus chose to step down from heaven. It was his choice. He emptied himself of all of the privileges he had of God, uh, being God to be born in the manger. Jesus chose to live a humble and perfect life without sin, to humbly obey the Father and die in our place. Does this attitude represent your life? Does this attitude represent my life? Is this mind, like the Bible says, in you? Does that fill your spirit? Because it was in Christ Jesus. This brings us to our second point, the exaltation of Christ. First we had the humiliation of Christ, then we have the exaltation of Christ. Nothing else in history could possibly match the scorn and humiliation that the sinful, rebellious man inflicted on the Son of God during his incarnation. Nothing else compares. But in the next three verses, the Apostle Paul shows the great exaltation that the Father then bestowed on the Son because of his sacrifice. These verses reveal God's response to Jesus' sacrifice displayed for us in verses 6 through 8. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every, name sh- or every knee shall bow, excuse me, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There's a truth in Scripture here that Jesus had taught. There's a truth that applies to the same passage, and it comes from Matthew 22, uh, verse 12. It says, For whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and who shall humble himself shall be exalted. Jesus said that the proud would be humbled, but the humble would be exalted. I ask you, has there ever been a more humble individual to walk the earth than Jesus Christ? Has there ever been a more humble individual? He's God walking around in flesh. Has there ever been a more humble person? Of course not. So should the most humble be the most exalted? Yes. Obviously, the most humble should be the most exalted. So what did God the Father do, though, to exalt Christ? Our home text tells us one of the ways that God exalted Christ. It says he has given him a name which is above every name. This is the name given to Jesus that emphasizes his rank over all other beings. This name reflects his divine nature, also his unique privileges that were given to him by God the Father. But this name isn't reversed, uh, revealed excuse me, until verse 11. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. It says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of things in heaven, of things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it looks like that name is at the beginning of verse 10, does it not? It says that at the name of Jesus, 
Every knee should bow. It looks like the name that's exalted above every other name is that name, Jesus. But we lose some depth in translation. The name that is given to Jesus doesn't come till verse 11. It says that Jesus Christ is Lord. It would read that the name that Jesus possesses, right? My name is Ty, but I possess the name Cockman. That's my last name. It's just like that. Jesus, the name that Jesus possesses, every knee should bow. Everyone will bow to the Lord. God gave Jesus the title of Lord. And that title is one of majesty, authority, honor, and sovereignty. We see this to be true all throughout the New Testament. Hebrews 1, 8 through 10 says, But unto the Son, he, being the Father, saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, that's Jesus, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens of the works of thy hands. So God the Father tells the Son, your kingdom is forever. Matthew 28 continues, he says, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Jesus here has received all power from the Lord, God. The Father. John 5, 27 says, And hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. God the Father gave Jesus the ability to execute all judgment, because Jesus is Lord. God the Father exalted the Son above any and all beings, because Christ is the Lord. Keep reading with me and looking in Philippians 2. It says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ, there's that title, is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There's a result to the exaltation of Christ. There's a specific result that happens because Christ was exalted. And I know you saw it, but it's specific. It says that all will bow down and submit to the supreme lordship of Christ. There's not a question of will you, no, all will. The word confess here comes from a Greek word that I definitely can't pronounce, so you're just going to have to trust me. Confess means to acknowledge, to affirm, or to agree. You're acknowledging a truth that's already there. Jesus doesn't care whether or not you think he's Lord, he is. I don't care whether or not you think I'm a ginger, I am, right? It's just what it is. I know I cut most of it off, but it's just how it is. Confess means to acknowledge a fact that's already there. And this is what's going to happen. All will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord. But there's three groups that will confess Jesus as Lord and submit to him. There's three separate groups. The Bible says, and the first one there is the things of heaven. And this is referring to angels and deceased believers that are already in heaven. They're already there. Hebrews 1.6 says that all the angels of God worship him being Jesus. Revelation 4, 8 through 11, one of my absolute favorite passages in the Bible, talks about angels and saints worshiping Jesus in heaven. And it says, Thou art worthy, O who? Whose title is that? Jesus. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. That's that first group, those that are in heaven. Then there's a second group. It says, The things that are in earth. And this group refers to both the redeemed that are still here on earth and the unredeemed that are here on earth. 
On that day, on that judgment day, the redeemed will continue to worship Jesus as Lord, like they've already done on earth. And I was just thinking, like, what, what does that mean? Look at Romans 10, 9, right? If you're sharing the gospel, this is a go-to. The Bible says that if thou will confess, Greek word means acknowledge, to agree with, to admit to, if you will confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. I'm sorry, Jesus cannot be your Savior without being your Lord. It does not work that way. The Bible says if you confess him as Lord, the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart, then you can be saved. There is no salvation outside of submitting to the Lordship of Christ. And on that day when Jesus is sitting there, we'll just continue to worship him. We'll just continue to worship him like we've done here. But the unredeemed, however, will now confess Jesus as Lord without a hope of salvation. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9 says, And ye who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, listen, they shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. The unredeemed don't have a chance of salvation at that point. And then there's a third group. The third group is the things under the earth. And this refers to fallen angels and the unredeemed dead waiting on their final judgment. Revelation 20 uh, verses 11 through 15 says, And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face of the earth the heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and hell were delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of the fire. Right now you're in the group that's still on here, here on earth. You're group number two, the things in earth. Either redeemed or not, you're in that group. And will you acknowledge Jesus as Lord now and experience blessing? Or will you acknowledge him as Lord then and experience damnation and separation from him in hell? All will. It's not a question of, well, I don't think he is. I, I don't care what you think. That's what the Bible says. Listen to me. All will confess him as Lord. It's a matter of when. Will you do it now or will you do it then? It's just the hard truth. It's what it is. All will, but when will you? This, bio, uh, this brings us now to our final point, and this is the sanctification from Christ. We've seen the humiliation um, uh, of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, and now the sanctification that then comes from Christ. And I teach kids a lot, and I know there's some kids in here, so kids, remember, this is how I teach this. Sanctification is a process and a thing to begin. There's three steps to sanctification. But the way I teach the kids is right now we're after sin, chasing after it, fleeing from God. We're enemies of God. And when we get saved, we then are separated from that sin. But God's still over there. And then there's that second step. Slowly, gradually, we're being sanctified, right? Slowly, slowly, slowly. And then when we die, we get that glorified body and we're separated 
completely from our sin nature. No longer there at all. So let's look at these three steps now with um, Scripture so you don't just have to watch me jump around. So this process of sanctification is long. Sometimes it's difficult and humbling. But let me tell you what, it's rewarding. I'm so thankful I'm not the person I was when I got saved. I'm so thankful that the Lord didn't leave me where I was. We see this process in the next two verses of our home text. It's verses 12 through 13. He says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my own presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. This process of working out your salvation is that sanctification. And sanctification is just a word in the Bible that means separation. We're separated then from our sin to separate that believer from evil. And like I said, that sanctification takes three steps. And that first stage happens at our spiritual birth. It's that initial jump. God separating you from sin, saving you. It's an immediate moral change that happens the moment you are saved. The moment, praise the Lord. Romans 6, 11 uh, says it this way. It says, likewise, reckon yourselves to be, listen, you're dead to sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It continues in verse 18 and says, being then made free, praise the Lord, free from sin, you become the servants of righteousness. What's a better master? Servant of righteousness or a servant of sin? If you're one of them, you might as well be the servant of righteousness, right? Let's keep moving now. The second stage is not nearly as quick, though. We wish it was sometimes, don't we? That slow, gradual, stepping through, becoming more like Jesus. This stage of sanctification takes a lifetime to complete, but yet it's never done this side of heaven. But we grow in our spiritual maturity. We gradually, yet steadily, become more like Christ the longer we live. Colossians 3.10 says, You have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, after the image of him that created him. We must put on that new man, that spiritual man, in pursuit of looking like Jesus. The third stage of sanctification occurs in the future. It's that final jump where we leave this old body behind and we get our new glorified bodies that don't have a sin nature anymore. This is Philippians 3.21. It says, Who shall change, who being Jesus, shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. How wonderful that day is going to be, where we don't have to suffer with our sin nature anymore. We don't slip with our tongue anymore. We don't mess up in sin anymore. But right now, if you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're in that second stage of sanctification. You're in that slow, gradual moving. And there are two sides to that second stage of sanctification. And both are beautifully laid out for us in our home text. Verse 12 is that first part. It says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now in, uh, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul instructs the Philippian church to work out their salvation. We know because what James says, a real faith will have works. Works don't save us, right? We know that from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But a real faith will have works. That's that first side. 
This is our side of sanctification. This is what we have to actively do. We have to work out our salvation. But what does working out our salvation look like? In our day-to-day life, what does it look like to work out our salvation? It's kind of an odd thought process. uh, Romans, excuse me, 6, 12-13 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey the lust thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God and those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. It says don't let sin reign in your mortal body anymore. We can't allow sin just to live in our hearts. If you can sin all day and all night and just go to bed fine, that's an issue. We're not supposed to let sin reign in our bodies anymore. Colossians 3, 5 through 9 puts it this way. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. It lists multiple sins, fornication, uncleanliness, inordinate affection, excuse me, evil conspicuousness, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For the, which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. But listen to me now. It says, in which you walked sometime when you lived in, when, past tense, you lived in them. But now... Put off all of these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, out of your mouth. Lie not to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man and his deeds. You've put those things away. They're supposed to be gone. Our side of this sanctification process in the second stage is to put off those sinful actions. Get rid of them. Cut them off. Mortify means to cut off those members. Get rid of them. We used to live in active sin. We used to live according to the flesh. We used to live according to the way the flesh wanted. But put off those things. Stop living in them. If you're saved, you're not even the Lord of your life anymore. Who is? If you're living the way you want to live in your flesh, then who's the Lord of your life? I struggle too. I'm not saying I'm perfect. But our side of sanctification isn't just getting rid of sin. It'd be like this, okay, I love, and my wife doesn't like it, I love Wendy's and McDonald's, okay? It's like a terrible thing that I just love so much. And if all I ate for my entire life was Wendy's and McDonald's, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? And I lived my whole life that way. And then I came to the realization that, hey, that's kind of bad for you. How you wouldn't figure that out sooner? I don't know. But, right, I came to that realization, that's bad for you. So now do I just stop eating entirely since that's all I eat? Do I just cut off the bad and just hopefully I don't die of starvation? Is that what what I'm supposed to do? Or am I now supposed to eat the things that are good for me and pursue health? What, What am I supposed to do? The things that you have put on now are because you put off things of the flesh. After you get saved, you get rid of those things of the flesh, and you put on things of the Spirit. Keep reading in Colossians chapter 3. It says, after you've put off the things of the old man, put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, vows of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity or love, which is the bond of perfectness. Our side of this sanctification process is getting rid of sin and putting on righteousness. That's what we're responsible for. But it's a struggle. 
I struggle. You struggle. We struggle with our sin nature. It's a war in our body. And I know it's not as easy done as it is said, right? It's not easy to do. And I was thinking, Ty, how am I supposed to be perfect? I can't live that way. I can't either. I can't live perfectly. But here's the beautiful truth. I'm not alone in my sanctification. God didn't leave me where he found me. Philippians 2 verse 13 continues on. It says, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's God that does it. Even though we're responsible to work, it's the Lord Jesus that produces the good works and the spiritual fruit in the lives of believers. We're just responsible to do our part. He does the rest. I, listen, you have no idea how thankful I am that I'm not responsible to bear fruit. I'm so thankful it's not my job to be the one that produces fruit. I just do the work. Like Paul said, Apollos watered, or I have planted, Apollos watered, but it's God that gives the increase. If we do our work, God gives the increase. We just have to do our side of that sanctification process. Is that not encouraging? That the Lord of the universe is the one working in your life to sanctify you. The Lord Jesus Christ, who created the world, is the one working inside of you. Oh my gosh, that's so exciting, right? Right? I'm not responsible for it. It's encouraging. That's the other side of that sanctification process. God is the one that works in us. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. You can be confident that God will finish that good work of sanctification in you. And I know we get, sometimes we get excited right here because we see a lot of growth. And then we, man, I'm not moving as quick, right? I'm not doing as good as these two. But listen, as far as we come, when we get that glorified body, we're over here now. God completed it. It wasn't my job to walk all this way because I could never do it. It's God that does the sanctification process. And you can be confident in that. He's going to finish sanctifying you. But it's still our job to keep up our side of the process. Now listen, as we draw to a close tonight, let's reflect on the truth of Scripture. I know we've covered a lot because there's a lot in these verses. But Jesus stepped down from heaven 2,000 years ago to be humiliated for me and to be humiliated for you. Jesus came to this earth as a little baby in a manger last time he was here on earth. But the next time he comes back, he's not coming back in a manger. He's coming back as the Lord to judge the earth. He's not coming back like a baby next time. So you will either acknowledge him as Lord now or you will acknowledge him as Lord then. The choice is up to you. You would say-